0: In this bonus edition of Hoosology, we first welcome Scott Howard Cooper onto the show to discuss the fascinating life, career, and story of Steve Kerr. Find out the key to Kerr's success and enjoy Scott's excellent insight and perspective on a legendary player, GM, and coach. Today we welcome author John Finkel onto the show, who wrote Hoops Heist, The Athlete, and Mean Joe Green. As always, you can get in touch with the show through social media and through email at hoopsologypod at gmail.com. We are the member of the Off the Glass Basketball Network. Now enjoy the interview with Scott Howard Cooper. He is the author of Steve Kerr, A Life, coming June 15th, 2021. We now welcome Scott Howard Cooper onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Scott? Things are great. How are you guys? Really good. Thanks for joining the show and really excited to talk some Steve Kerr with you. Um, he has such a huge influence because I believe that, you know, a lot of players get mentioned in terms of their cross relevance in terms of different generations. But I believe Steve Kerr is the top of that list in terms of his influence from this the um, late 80s, like the 90s, and then just to now. Just a profound influence on the game. So I'll start with a basic question to you, Scott. Um, what makes, really motivates you to start um, writing a biography of Steve Kerr's life, just considering that his career is not over? like There's still a lot more time in terms of what's going to happen in terms of his coaching career. Why do you think this is the right time to write this book about him?
1: Well, I, I, first of all, I agree with you. I, I, he's got a lot more... Uh, a lot more things to accomplish, a lot more impact that I think he's going to make, and not only in basketball. I, I don't think that this is the final Steve Kerr biography by any means. Uh, he's still got a lot of decades ahead of him. I would be shocked if there wasn't another one at some time on Steve, maybe even on his family, because that's part of the story here. It, it's an amazing family history when you go back three generations so far, just of Steve and, and who knows what's going to come next. His kids seem awfully bright and like they're going to have a nice future themselves. But what I, what I came to when we decided to move forward to this was, it really appealed to me that this was much more than the traditional basketball story. And obviously, Steve is not typical basketball-wise in any means uh, when you look at his career path. But I think what sets him aside, what really drew me to do this as a biography, is uh, that he's had a unique career, but it's a fascinating life. I I think what he has done off the court, where his his name has come up, his life experiences, the things that have happened to him uh, since he was a youth up until now when he's into his 50s, it's a really fascinating story, even apart from the interesting basketball life.
0: And Scott, where do you think, I guess, Steve Kerr gets that kind of everyman charm from? Because just seeing him in the press conferences, his interviews, he just kind of has that likable charm. Is this kind of like, I can't not like Steve Kerr as a human being, <laughs> as a basketball coach. Do you know from just writing the book, do you know where that comes from? Just his kind of sensibility with people just from reporters
1: to players, just kind of having that universal likability? And by the way, all of that is unique. There's no phony about him. Um, he is a good guy. Uh, certainly not perfect. And I think a lot of people, when they, uh, when they talk about not liking Steve Kerr, especially in 2021, it's because of his politics, but not his personality. This is a guy that is easily one of the most popular people in the NBA over at least the last 25 years. You, you really struggle to find somebody who has anything bad to say about him. And uh, as you guys know, that's pretty unique, considering a lot of the heated situations people are in with teammates and opponents. Uh, this is a guy that has been a player, a GM, as a coach, and he's still very, very popular. And he's always been that way. There's always been this maturity about him. Uh, even since he was a kid and just wanting to play baseball and basketball, just want to hang out with his buddies in Southern California. And his parents would say, you know, time to go to Cairo, time to go to Beirut. We're we're moving to France. Uh, He was always uprooted and always sort of kept his head up and found the best in difficult situations. If you ask who gets the credit for that, I think clearly it's his parents. And he's got also... Uh, two older uh, siblings, a brother and a sister, and he's got a younger brother. And certainly that goes into it as well. Just the surroundings he grew up in. Uh, his parents always wanted him exposed to uh, unique situations, different cultures. And and uh, it, it obviously came with living in the Middle East for a, a lot, some of his youth and, and Europe. Uh, but also even you can see that now. He's a guy that It just gets along with everybody, and I think a lot of it is because of that upbringing.
2: And if you had to kind of condense that into traits, you know, piggybacking off of what you said there, he, he's worn so many different career hats uh, since, you know, as a basketball player and then post-retirement from his playing days, is there a certain discernible trait or, or maybe a couple different traits that you picked up on as, as kind of the, I guess, maybe string tying all this success that he's had together? Because it's not often that you see someone be successful in the broadcast booth as well as as a GM and a coach in all, all those
1: different hats that he's worn? I would say probably two jump out. Uh, the maturity that I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, he's a guy that has always carried himself well. Uh, he shows his emotions. Uh, he's cried on the basketball court on several occasions and doesn't care. He's gotten furious in front of people and doesn't care. He's got a, a big time temper. Uh, he, so he doesn't try to hide from anything. He, he lets people know who he is, but he has always had this presence about him that has, uh, as a freshman at Arizona, he fit in with the older guys. Um, as a rookie in the NBA or a young player in the NBA, whether it was Phoenix or, or Cleveland after he was traded, he's always fit in with the older guys. And that has served him very, very well. Because he's, you know, when you're a guy who's just trying to carve out a career, this is someone who who entered the NBA thinking, geez, if I could just grind out a season or two. If, if I could just get some money in the bank and then go into coaching, that would sure help out my family. And it's 15 seasons of an NBA career. Uh so he knew that he had to be adaptable. He knew that he couldn't walk into a locker room throwing an ego around. And that's never been who he is. A lot of that is that maturity. Secondly, uh, he's the first guy to say that he has always put a priority on being prepared. Um uh, we all know that, you know, players love to do their shooting games after practice, maybe before a game. And and Steve liked that as well as anybody, but only after he got his work in. He wanted to be prepared. There were a lot of times he didn't know if he was going to play two minutes or 20 minutes, but he would show up and be one of the first guys at practice, one of the last guys to leave. And he's only working on shots that he might be taking. He's not one of those guys that's out there screwing around, doing half-court hook shots or or any of the Harlem Globetrotter stuff. It's always repetition, repetition, repetition. There was this one story. uh, His second stop in the NBA was with the Cavaliers. And he ended up sitting too far down the bench. And Lenny Wilkins is calling for him. He wants to send Steve into the game. And Steve doesn't hear him. And so Lenny calls for somebody else, and they go in the game, and Steve misses an opportunity, which, again, for a guy just trying to, trying to scrape together a career at that point, you miss any game opportunity, that's a huge deal. He always kicked himself for that. He just said, why didn't I hear Lenny? So from then on, he made a point to sit as close to the coach as possible. He didn't want that to happen. He always wanted to prepare for the shots that he might get. Uh, He spent a long time preparing to be an NBA head coach before he wanted to actually take on the role of NBA head coach. He knew he wanted to do the job, but only in the right time when his kids were old enough that they were either out of the house or or close to being out of the house. And yet for several years before that, he was taking notes. Uh, He was putting files together, Word documents, video clips, putting things together that he may want to use. Preparation that's a huge part for Steve
0: Scott, I want to ask you you know Steve Kerr has he was very fortunate to play under the the coaching tree of Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich, and of course his uh, his time with Michael Jordan as well. In terms of his coaching style, you, you mentioned how he had the preparations to become a head coach, but which do you think he took from the motion terms of coaching the Warriors? Was it is it more of a Popovich influence or more of a Phil Jackson influence? Is it a combination of both? Where do you think he was inspired by, and do you think it kind of changed over the years depending on i guess as he got closer to making the decision to coach the golden state warriors i guess did he have i guess the question i'm trying to ask is did he want to come up with his own style or do you think he was heavily influenced by one or the other
1: it's both actually and and he would be the first to say uh, that he's been greatly influenced by phil jackson and greg popovich And also two of his other coaches ended up are in the hall of fame as well. Lute Olson. He took a lot from Uh, Lenny Wilkins. He really liked playing for Lenny and and there's so many positive in in Lenny Wilkins coaching career, obviously, that he could take from that. Uh, He also talks about the positives from other people uh, that he, that he worked with along the way. Um, I, so he would say everybody and, and that's partly him being diplomatic and partly him being honest. Clearly though, Phil and Popovich are the ones that have influenced the most. If you ask me to pick between those two, I'd probably say Phil a little bit because uh, that, that ball movement that, that with the triangle offense that became famous when, uh, with the Bulls. And Steve was a part of that. One of the reasons Chicago wanted this guy that nobody else wanted at the time was because they thought he was a perfect fit. Uh, for the triangle offense, Constant motion. Even you have Michael Jordan on your team, you don't want the ball stopping in Michael Michael Jordan's hands and telling everybody else to get out of the way. So I I think there was much more ball movement uh, with the Bulls and then with the Spurs, especially early on. When Steve got to San Antonio, he was actually a little bit frustrated uh, that the ball didn't move as much. So I think probably Phil... Uh, but you see it in both of those guys, especially personality-wise, the way, they, uh, the way they handle different situations, the way they not only allow the outside world to come in but encourage it. A lot of this, uh, a lot of this about Steve Kerr being so outspoken in recent years, that's right out of the, the Greg Popovich playbook. That's right out of the Phil, Jack- uh, Phil Jackson playbook. So uh, there's no question that his, th- the people he's played for and worked with have had tremendous influences
2: absolutely and and we've kind of i think only had a small glimpse of his his coaching in in certain aspects like he you know, the kind of characterization of Phil Jackson as a coach is he's a genius at chemistry and, and managing right. high-level talent. We've gotten to see a lot of that of of Steve Kerr, and then kind of more recently, unfortunately, due to injuries, I think we've gotten to see some more of the player development side, which maybe some would argue is, is kind of more along the lines of Popovich, though he certainly had top-tier talent. Um, ha- have you had a sense of... Kerr's philosophy over the last two years kind of in uncharted waters for him as a coach in in kind yeah. of this more uh, stressful, tumultuous, you know just just kind of unfortunate fate, of course with injuries. Have you had a sense of strategies he's used to to manage that and kind of the the focus that he's used these last two years in Golden State?
1: Yeah, the uncharted waters, and certainly the unexpected. It's not like this was a a plan rebuild. It's not like the Warriors won those championships and and then said, "Okay, we you know we've got some old guys. We need to start start over." It was it was forced on him, uh, and so there's been that uh, that big adjustment, as you mentioned. Um, he's handled it the only way he knows how, which is uh, to say, it sucks. There's no denying that it sucks. Uh, they did all they could do. You know they they've been fortunate at least this season. They've had uh, Steph Curry playing at a, a crazy level. so that's kept them going to a certain degree. Uh, but it's he's tried to put a positive on it, which is the only thing he can do, which is to say, this is our chance to develop some of the young players. We're gonna have we're gonna now have better players around us. When Clay Thompson comes back to join Draymond Green and Steph, then we would have otherwise just because they've had no choice. A lot of these guys have had to play. They found out who can do what a little bit more. Um, but there, there's no question. It, it feels like to a lot of people uh, around the league that this is karma, that Steve is trying to get through it and nobody likes beating up on Steve Kerr because they think so highly of him, but they sure do love beating up on the rest of the Warriors because (laughs) they feel like that this is payback that has been coming uh, for some of the Warriors' personalities as they were winning. Now it's come back around on them, and the boomerang has hit them right in the forehead.
0: Mm.
2: I I also wonder, you know, you mentioned um, that – Steve Kerr has so many opportunities. He's he's succeeded in just about everything that he's done or he's definitely like learned from his failures and been able to adapt and be resilient. Um you know, given the last two years too and and also, you know, unfortunately there've been some health issues where he's had he's had time he's had to take away from the coaching bench. Um do do you think that if you had to predict, or or the sense that you get about Steve Kerr, right, do you think that he will stay around as a coach for several years to come, or could you see, um, you know, once maybe this dynasty moves forward or he changes rosters, um, I, I guess what I'm asking is, do you see coaching as his long-term career? If if you had to predict,
1: oh, I think he's still got a lot of years in him. He he loves this. Uh, he certainly isn't. Uh, doesn't need the money. He's been taken care of very well um, as a player, um, especially at the end of his career. And then, you know, he, he knows that he could have the the best job in America is network broadcast analyst, because <laughs> you travel around, yeah. you, you travel first class, you stay in great hotels, you're driven back and forth to arenas, and the win-loss record never ends up on your page. <laughs> <on your base. laughs> So he could still be around the game and making good money uh, if he wanted to. He's obviously made a great deal from the Warriors as well. He's doing this because he loves it. He's really got a passion for it. It's something he has wanted to do pretty much all of his life, certainly all of his adult life. There was a a brief time where he thought he might want to get into uh, administration, like become an athletic director or something along those lines. So it's always been, his goal has always been, once his playing career ended, is to do something in sports and especially in basketball, and for the most most part, it's been he's wanted to get into coaching. It was just a matter of the, the right timing, and uh, not only has he probably enjoyed it much more than he thought he would, or exactly as much as he thought it would, it's been everything that he would have hoped. Uh, when he had those health problems that you mentioned, and he had to step away from the game, that was the reminder to him that. He, you don't cruise through this job, that this is a gift. He knows he's got a great opportunity. He, he knows that uh, not only is this a great job to have, to be an NBA head coach, but he's got it in an incredible situation that it's not like he's on the same page with his GM and his owners, and he's had some incredible players, even if everything ends with the Warriors now. And they don't win a game for the rest of this year or next year, he's still going to find some positives to it. I, I think he knows that there's opportunities out there for him in other walks in other uh, other parts, maybe away from basketball. Obviously, it has to do with his uh, social activism. He, he he wants to tackle some things in society, uh, but that's down the line uh, if his health holds up. And that's obviously we can't speak to his health. Sure. If his health holds up, I think he wants to do this for a long time.
2: And is that a, a mix of kind of the interpersonal relationship that you you mentioned is is so important to him and, and his development as a human being, as, as well as that competitive, you know, urge as as an athlete? Is that kind of what makes coaching so perfect for Steve Kerr or are there other things outside of that as well?
1: That, that's most of it. And he loves the strategy, but uh, that probably gets into that competition uh, that you were talking about. He's got a big time competitive streak, but he loves the day to day. There's no monotony or there's I guess there is for everybody, but there's very little uh, monotony in his in his life. And even in his career, uh, one of the reasons uh, he, wanted, he, he was a general manager for a few seasons with the Phoenix Suns, as most people know. And he could have been a GM at, at other teams after that. Um, but he wanted to get into coaching. He felt like there was this big wall when you're a GM. You're certainly around the team every day, but at the same time, uh, you're in an office. Things are happening down on the court. And he really missed that day-to-day aspect. Uh, what most people might find to be a grind. He loves the bus bus rides. Uh, He loves the locker room banter. He loves the energy after a big win. He loves being a part of trying to figure out a solution after a loss. Uh, So he he loves almost everything about it.
0: Scott, I want to ask you about Steve Kerr's mentality and – how he felt when the Warriors were at top, comparing to his run with the Bulls' 90s teams. Um, how did he kind of keep that mentality with the Warriors to always keep striving? For, for greatness did he kind of use the lessons he learned back with the 90s Bulls and especially back then in the 90s there was no social media and right. now with with Twitter and everything it seems like the, the hate is just constant all the time overflowing compared to back when Kerr was actually playing there'd be you know newspaper articles it was just a, a lot different to digest a lot of the, the feedback from fans so what was his techniques in terms of keeping his team on course to
1: have the Warriors achieve the success that they did there's always a way to put a challenge out there for a team and and let's also remember that one of the big advantages he had was his players were just as competitive as as he was back in the time and uh when you when you're building around Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Klay Thompson, Andrew Bogut, Andre Iguodala, Harrison Barnes, uh David Lee, um I hope I'm not leaving anybody out off the top of my head thinking back to the, the championship warriors. That's a group of really competitive guys who are professional, um, who are striving just as hard as Steve is. And um, one of the reasons they got in trouble one of the years and ended up losing the championship, I think they put out so much energy at the end of the regular season because they wanted to break the Bulls regular season record for most wins in a season. That's the mark of a competitive team. Now, in retrospect, it may have been a mistake to let them expend so much energy going for that because that comes back to hurt you in the playoffs. But that's also the mark of a team that doesn't want to just win. They want to, even after a championship or two championships, they still wanted to win at historic levels. They wanted to be in the conversation anytime anybody wanted to talk about the greatest teams in NBA history. They wanted to make sure that the Golden State Warriors of that era, uh, the beginning of Steve Kerr's run, came up in the conversation. So that was a big that was a big help. That it's not like he had he didn't have to push really hard to get these guys motivated. They had it already. Uh, but he always put a priority on keeping things fresh. He always had this great perspective uh, about when to push, when to when to sort of pull back a little bit. He's one of those coaches that would. Uh, build in uh, fun stuff to do in practices, maybe cancel a practice on the road and do a little sightseeing, a bowling trip. Uh, those things really help out, especially when you're a team that for a few years in a row keeps playing into June. There, there's going to be just this, uh, this sort of drag that is inevitable. And that's one of the ways that his personality Uh, really helped out because it wasn't just about Steve Kerr and the X's and O's and the way he relied on his assistant coaches to really step up and, and, and handle a lot of the game planning. It was that personality that we saw that really came through. What surprised you about writing the book? Did anything
0: stand out that were before coming into and then when you, you know, completed it, you're like, holy smokes, I had no idea about that, about Steve Kerr. Did anything surprise you?
1: About the process of writing a book or about Steve Kerr in particular? Um, both. Well, uh, that was kind of the neat thing. I, I, I've been around Steve for a long time, and so I felt like I was I was pretty fluent in Steve Kerr. And the fact that I was still surprised by some of the stuff that, that I was coming up with uh, was really something I, I – uh, was really enjoyable because that means that it's the same thing that uh, the readers, people th- people who have been following this guy that has been in the spotlight since the 1980s are still going to find new layers. It, it, it's nothing, no big news story. They're not going to find anything. There's no oh my gosh moment. But just the way his life has proceeded, I, I think that there's a, a few different things that surprised me. Most of all, none of this was ever supposed to happen. That's really the amazing thing and this is, this is sort of putting things in context when we talk about new things that people are going to learn. Uh, I think this is one of them, that when you string everything together, it's incredible that, that this happened. Uh, his parents were never supposed to meet. Uh, he had no business getting a scholarship to Arizona and going to Tucson ended up being easily one of the best things that ever happened to him. For him to think, I should be on the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan, BJ Armstrong and John Paxson and say, I can help that team. He couldn't even get on the court for the 41 and 41 Orlando magic the season before. And here he is saying, I can play for the Bulls. He had no business being with the Bulls. That wasn't supposed to happen either. And he certainly wasn't supposed to be the Warriors coach. Remember he had accepted the Knicks job. He he told Phil Jackson, I'm coming (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then back out right. and goes to the war. So there's all these events that it's an incredible set of circumstances how he got to this point because none of this was supposed to happen. Also, some of the I, I found it really amusing that when when you put this puzzle together, some of the connections that maybe he made at one point in his life that came back to him uh later in life, it, it's really kind of fascinating. It's almost like there's this. Forrest Gump sense (laughs) about him there's this whole long string of things um, to just throw out a few and there were so many of them that I had to make a list at one point Um, he's a young player his second year maybe his third year he's with the Cavaliers and Paul McKeskey can see that you know here's this guy that loves to play and can do a few things he can certainly shoot But he's laying back too much. So Paul gets on him and says, Let it fly, let it fly. You just, you're overthinking out there. Just go out there and and let her rip. And so Steve starts to do that and he gets better at that. And then it's at the end of his career, the last year of his playing career, he's with the San Antonio Spurs. And the second greatest moment of Steve's playing career, of course, number one was hitting the shot that gives the Bulls the championship in 1997. But then here it is at the very end. And he gets tossed into a game. The Spurs are way behind the Mavericks. And everyone's thinking, okay, they're going to, Dallas has got this wrapped up. And Tony Parker had food poisoning. And so Steve had to go in there. He starts hitting every shot. And he leads the Spurs (laughs) to come back and win that game. And he's letting it fly. And they're not, the, the Mavs aren't doing a good job of guarding him. Who's an assistant coach on the Dallas bench? Paul McKeskey, the same guy <laughs> um, there, wow. was a, there was there's was a uh, a student at Swarthmore named Marcus Nolan many many years ago, and he's friends he's acquaintances, not great friends, but he's acquaintances with Steve Kerr's older brother uh John Kerr uh, It's many, many years later, decades later, and the same Marcus Nolan is in the White House he's in the Roosevelt room. And President Obama is trying to get an idea of who can we send? We need somebody to sort of be an emissary. North Korea has a new leader. Who can we send over there? We need somebody that can talk to this guy, try to make, try to make some inroads. Marcus Nolan, the same guy that knew Steve Kerr's brother in college, speaks up and says, let's send Steve Kerr. Now, what life does this happen in Gosh. That, <laughs> that, this, that this guy is... Getting punched out by Michael Jordan, that this guy is coming back from being told as a Arizona player that your career is over because you blew your knee out. Uh, that has an amazing run in college, in the pros, uh, has all these things happen, and all of a sudden, his name is coming up in legitimate conversation with the president. Let's send Steve Kerr to North Korea to meet with <laughs> to meet with Kim Jong Un. <laughs> Now it didn't go very far, but that just shows you what kind of life that this guy has had. It's it's incredible the Forrest Gump moments.
2: Absolutely, I mean so many so many things you list off there are so improbable, and I I think an amazing story of uh, a man who is able to rise to the occasion so many so many different times. Um, are are there any like kind of big picture? you know life sort of lessons that that you think people can take from from this story
1: probably the the preparation aspect because uh that's uh that's one thing that has always served him well uh if you're talking about things beyond basketball it's uh, it's about how you treat people and it's about being prepared and i don't think that this is any revolutionary idea to say you always want to be prepared but steve really embodies that aspect if you ask that what can what can people take away from this and i think that uh, there will probably come a time that steve's going to write his own book i don't think it's going to be a straight autobiography i don't think that that interests him at all i think it's going to be a lot about uh, his his discussion about issues in society and life lessons and certainly one of the biggest life lessons from steve is that corny reality about always be prepared
0: scott i want to ask you what were the challenges that you came across when when writing the book that um did you encounter any obstacles that maybe prevented you f- from telling the story you wanted to tell or or was it pretty much um pretty easy to pretty much lay out everything since you spent a lot of time with steve kerr
1: i have spent a lot of time with steve kerr over the years uh in I, i've i've had conversations with him i've interviewed him since he was in college and Uh, We grew up around the same time and around the same place, and I'd been to a lot of the high school gyms that he played in. I'd been to all the Pac-10 gyms, Pac-10 at the time, Pac-10 gyms that he played in, the NBA arenas. So as I said before, I felt really fluent in speaking Steve Kerr. Uh, He did not want to participate in this project at all. And if you talk about obstacles, That was a minor one. It it certainly was not enough that uh, made us shut it down as he would have hoped. He didn't want the attention. He thinks that this is going to go over bad in the locker room. And so he was trying to trying to bat it down any chance he could. Uh, He did answer my questions in group settings, but he would not sit down for a long interview. That was a that was a disappointment. That was a small setback because there were a, a couple points I would have liked to explore with him maybe things he hadn't really talked about before. It wasn't as though I wanted to to talk about Donald Trump or uh, what happened in game seven of such and such a series or anything like that. It was a lot mainly about his personality because I think that that's one of the things that sets him aside. Uh, and so he didn't want anything to do with it and did his best to politely discourage anyone around him from participating as well. Uh, some people agreed and, and other people kind of said, no, I'm, I'm gonna talk anyway. Uh, some people didn't want their name used and said, we, we're, we're talking, but we're not talking, right? Uh, so there was some of that, but again, I, I, I've done hundreds of hours of interviews with him. I've been around the Warriors for many years. Uh, it wasn't like that there was any kind of linchpin moment that I was missing. Um, mild setback and a disappointment and certain areas I would have liked to flush out a little bit more, but nothing that uh, shut the project down.
0: Well, that's that's very interesting to hear just because a lot of those uh, moments that might be a little bit controversial is already kind of out there. Um, we just heard Draymond recently on Kevin Durant's podcast is talking about what their, their whole – issue that they had so it just seems like anything that would be controversial already kind of been discussed right, and, and,
1: and that's what I'm saying I, yeah. he, he certainly was not ducking the controversy Yeah, um, any of the controversial topics uh, this is a guy that that is available to the media what five or uh, five or six days out of every week <laughs> so uh, you're still we're still able to get the questions in he's still he's still taking on a lot of the those questions that um he he maybe he thought he was going to get from me i don't know uh but it's not like trying to get information it's not like trying to get conversation from somebody who has completely walled himself off from the world. He's out there a lot. There's a lot of interviews that he's done uh, in depth, talking on different topics. And then it's just the day-to-day stuff. So it, it's not like he was concerned about my questions. Uh, he made it clear, you know, we, we had in our email exchanges when he said he, he didn't want to do it, he made it clear it was, it was not anything personal. Uh, he would have turned down probably anybody. Um, yeah. and we had a very good relationship. As I said, when I asked questions in a group setting, um, uh, I was kind of curious the first time or two. If he was going to just give a yes or no answer or shrug his shoulder and not give any answer and, and, and really try to, to tighten the screws on me. But he gave terrific answers in those settings. I wasn't going to ask my best questions at those times because I didn't want it. Uh, I, there were certain things I was going for that I didn't want somebody to put in their, uh, in their Internet story that night or the next morning or something. Mm-hmm. So I held some of the things back for other times when I could sneak the questions in, maybe without him knowing it. Um, But we're still. He still was gracious and professional. He he, he gave a firm no, but also a polite no.
0: Um, final question for you, Scott. Uh, when Steve Kerr's career is said and done, um, where do you think he's going to just rank among the um, his colleagues in that fraternity of just NBA head coaches? Because I think his his influence is pretty profound. Um, do you think he'll be considered among you know kind of his his mentors in the in the coaches he looked up to with Phil and Popovich? Where do you think he's going to kind of stack up? Um, I know it's kind of hard to say. Just can I tell in the future?
1: But well, I yeah, I was if, just going to say, tell me, tell me what happens in the next two years,
0: <laughs> right? I, I guess it, it, let's say if his career ended today, if he just said, hey, I'm done, I'm going to go off to a beach, or hey, I, I want to get back with the TNT guys and reunite with them. Um, where do you think? I guess he would rank among his his colleagues because I feel like coaches don't really. Get Get that credit, and I feel just considering what we're seeing with Steph Curry right now, Steph kind of gets that just that and a lot of the attention along with Clay Thompson. But you know, Steve Curry plays a massive role in that. So, where do you think he's gonna get a rank and get his his credit is due? Um, if he were to you
1: know leave today among his colleagues, he wouldn't rank up there with his two biggest influence. He, he's not at the Phil Jackson, sure, Greg Popovich level, and by the way, a lot of what. People say about Steve now, they also said about Phil all those years, you know, you got yeah. Steph Curry, you got Michael Jordan. <laughs> all you're doing is rolling the balls out there and, and letting the guys do their thing. And anybody that knows coaching knows that that's obviously not the case. So I think that around the league uh, that he has earned a great deal of respect. This is somebody that, that for many years people thought this guy will be a great head coach. Um, It's not like the Warriors took a big leap by saying, let's hire this guy. It was an interesting hire at the time because they had just fired a guy that was a first-time head coach and trying to feel his way around. And then they went back and immediately hired a first-time coach who would need some time to feel his way around. But uh, if we were to put it in player terms, that if at the time when Steve was thinking about getting into coaching, if there was a draft, he would have been – Uh, probably the number one pick for a a coaching job, that everybody was convinced that he would do very well in this. So uh, he And he has. uh, He would be considered certainly one of the best coaches of his era. Again, not up with Pop, not up with Phil, uh, but everybody respects him. Everybody likes him. He's had a great deal of success. Uh, He's worked through some difficult issues as sort of a a, a proving ground and I think if we were to to sort of change the question a little bit and say well let's go beyond today if he has any success at all moving forward in the future whether it's with uh, the healthy warriors when they get Clay back with Draymond and yeah. Steph and maybe some of the other guys develop like James Weissman and we'll see what they end up doing this offseason yeah. as well if they have any success with that group or if that group leaves and then he has some success with the next wave, I'm not even saying three championships, but just if he has some good playoff runs, that will help him a great deal. That'll, that'll do a lot for his legacy. But if he leaves today, uh, he's been a very successful coach. He's had a, uh, the Warriors have had a great deal of success in large part because of him. It's It's obviously Steph and Draymond and the other players and Clay when he's been around. But anybody that tries to downplay Steve Kerr's impact on this team winning championships is just wrong. He has been a very, very good head coach.
0: Scott, thank you very much for joining the show. Uh, Please let the listeners and viewers know um, where they can find you on social media and also um, reiterate
1: when when the book is coming out. Uh, The book is Steve Kerr, A Life from William Morrow. It's coming out June 15th. And I I hope people enjoy reading it half as much as I enjoyed writing it because it's a lot of work, but it it was also a lot of fun. I had a blast doing it, and I hope that comes through on the pages. Uh, Anybody that would like to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you on Twitter, at S. Howard Cooper. Uh, Instagram, Scott Howard Cooper as well. So hopefully we'll have a chance to continue the conversation.
0: For sure. Thank you very much for joining the show, Scott. Really appreciate it. Thanks. This was fun. Nate Robinson. And um, you you wrote a book about him. And, you know, he's been in the news this year um, just concerning um, his boxing match he had with Jake Paul. And I just want to ask you kind of like. When not only when you were seeing that, but overall with athletes starting to cross over into not all the other sports but other mediums, do you think that's kind of the way of the future? Um, I, you can kind of answer it in terms of entertainment or in combat sports specifically. I mean, we just—I I know this is kind of ridiculous to compare, but it did happen with Lamar Odom uh, competing in a boxing match as well. Yeah. Just seeing a lot more of just we're you know seeing athletes starting to. In team sports, compete in combat sports, do you think this is any kind of a trend or do you think kind of the Nate Robinson thing was kind of like an anomaly um, in, her, in his thing with uh, Jake Paul?
3: Um, when I got to do the Nate book, Nate and I became friends before that, um, and we were friends to this day, we text, not, you know, weekly, but enough. And um, Nate, he got, he's, he's, he's a legit 5'7". And this dude won Mr. Basketball and Mr. Football in the state of Washington. He was recruited by USC. He was recruited by Arizona, Notre Dame, Michigan to play football. And he decided he wanted to stay home and play basketball and football. And Coach Omar at Washington let him do it. Rich Neuheisel let him do it. He would have been a first-round pick in the NFL uh, had he done that, but he just wanted to play basketball. Thought it would be better for his body at his size. There's maybe six people we've seen since then who've actually had the talent to truly be a first-round pick in both of those sports. And so uh, all of that is to say, whoever trained him, and I talked to him briefly about it for that boxing match, did him a, a, a very big disservice. He He's one of the still the quickest dudes you'll find. He's powerful. And the fact that they let him go out there and lead with his face and get it just, just absolutely – I mean, he should have just been covering up ducking, bobbing, tiring out. He's an elite athlete still. Yeah. And uh, that bugged me. And, and we, we've talked about it since. But I uh, just want to throw that out there since I had, I had a little insight in there. I'm not saying he would have won, but it should have gone the distance. He should have gotten knocked out. He just never really covered up. To your point about what athletes are doing, it's 100% the future. You know, If you're an athlete and you have a dedicated, loyal audience that you can take – portable—you know, it's a portable audience you can take to do whatever you want – the next smart business move is to start a business to feed that audience. Maybe it's selling T-shirts. Maybe you start a protein shake that you're selling or food service or lotion. You know, we see it, it makes total sense. Look at The Rock. Look at Shaq. Yeah. Look at these guys. Um, it takes all the power out of the owner's hands, all the power out of the league's hands. And you could argue that there should be more of a balance 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Um, but if I'm sitting here and I've got a following of any of these guys and i work with, you know, the hoopsize book I, I published with uh, with Isaiah Thomas and helped him set up his publishing company and his branding and and all the things he wants to do. He has a media and apparel company now. Um, I can't see the argument why you wouldn't. It's like I'm sitting, you know, it's, I'm sitting on all this like that line in swingers, right? It's like I'm mm-hmm. sitting there bare with these claws and I'm sitting there with these fangs and I'm gonna just like not make money. Yeah, like it makes no sense. <laughs> so I don't see why I would ever go back and be like saying, okay, so you've got on your base of your audience you know, maybe 10% of them are truly loyal. Maybe you've got 50,000 people who are going to watch your show, listen to your podcast, buy your gear, um, go to affiliate links if you're sponsored, doing all that stuff. Hell yeah, you would do it. And if it comes to boxing or, um, you know, Dwayne Wade's hosting TV shows now, this is That's- nothing new. Shaq's done all this stuff. The opportunities that are going to come these guys' ways, the smart ones um, are going to take advantage of it. The, the ones who, you know, some of them don't want these careers. They want to invest in you know, housing or rental, they want to give back or philanthropy. But I think the ones who are really charismatic, uh, and, and, and really have that entrepreneurial spirit, absolutely. And I, I really, I, there's no counter to it. I don't, I don't see why you wouldn't do that short of you know, you just want to go fish in Montana the rest of your life. Sure. And by the way, if you're sitting on $200 million, that sounds pretty <laughs> awesome too.
0: Right. Yeah, totally agree. Well, John, uh, thank you very much for joining the show. I um, really appreciate it. Can you let our listeners and viewers know not only where they can find you on social media, but also because um, any books that we failed to mention on here, any projects you're working on, anything that we should uh, keep our eyes out for. Oh, there's
3: so many books you failed to mention. I mean, there's just a laundry list of other <laughs> books I did. Um, <laughs> Listen, no, I thank you guys for having me on. If they want to uh, best places, Twitter at John underscore Finkel, same with Instagram at John underscore Finkel. Um, my website, johnfinkel.com has every book that I've written. I write a blog post. I do a newsletter, um, every week called books and biceps, which, uh, you guys look like two jack dudes. So you want you want to listen to it? I recommend a book and a workout every week. Here we go. Look at look at uh, Maddie Guns over there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I interview a lot of authors, a lot of sports authors, um, on, on there that kind of give like a behind the book view of why they wrote what they wrote. Uh, so I think if you're listening to this, you'll, you'll probably really enjoy the newsletter. So definitely sign up for that. Um, and thank you guys. Man, this was a lot of fun. Really, really thoughtful conversation about uh, about sports in general, and then of course the glory that is 1996.
0: Yeah, it was uh, awesome going down memory lane. It's kind of appropriate. The Olympics is coming up. We got the NBA finals coming back in Space Jam, kind of (laughs) like perfect timing. So, uh, John, (laughs) thanks for uh, coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you,
3: guys.